in the Friedrich Rebbe's diary, he tells a story that his father told him as a child, six or seven, which he recorded in his diary when he first started keeping a diary as a kid, an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old. And um, he wrote down at that time many of the stories his father had told him in his earlier youth and he recorded them one after another in his diary. And um, a part of that diary was printed after the Friedrich Rebbe passed away. It's sad but true, most of the Friedrich Rebbe's diaries lost. In fact, yet in Europe, in, in the 30s, a letter from the previous Rebbe to our Rebbe where he writes, I wrote so much I don't know what happened to my writings. In other words, it wasn't lost in the war, it was lost in transition from Russia. So many of the Rebbe's personal notes, his journal must have been incredibly extensive, are gone. And they're just bits and pieces that are trickling out of Russia now that have been published and with the help of God, of course, will continue to be published. Here's a, a, a juicy shtickle. It's a big piece with many stories. And amongst the stories that the Rebbe records, there's a story that he heard from his father about the Halik of Baal Shem Tev. And the Baal Shem Tev had a follower. He wasn't a Talmud, he wasn't a Gon, he wasn't a Chassid, he wasn't a Tzaddik. He was a wonderful, sincere Jew by the name of Ramesh Shleimer. Ramesh Shleimer was well-to-do and he was supporting the Baal Shem Tev's causes. The Baal Shem Tev needed lots of money for Pidyan Shvuyim to redeem pe- people who had been put in prison or otherwise captured. He also had a fund to support the Tzadikim Nestarim whom the Rebbe had to, Shantav had to support. And the Moshe Shleimer was always there to um, help the Baal out. He had a wife whose name was Rivka who was his partner in all of his efforts of Tzadokah and so forth. They were wonderful people. And they had no children. And he would come to the Baal Shem Tev with his wife and get incredible brachas for all kinds of wonderful things. But whenever he would ask for a bracha for children, the Baal Shem Tev would ignore him. It was, of course, a terrible omen. He understood what this meant. The Baal Shem Tev's refusal to give him a bracha meant that the Baal Shem Tev felt that he simply cannot. And it upset him very much, and his wife as well. And he shared his pain with the Baal Shem Tev's Talmidim, with the Chavraya Kaddish, with the members of the Holy Society. And they too went to the Baal Shem Tev and interceded, they begged and pleaded and said, listen, this man is so wonderful and he's so helpful and he's so supportive. Maybe the Rebbe can do something. And the Baal Shem Tev wouldn't. Baal Shem Tev would simply not give him a bracha as hard as they would try. And It seems to me like the story I'm about to tell happened after they had been married for many, many, many years, for 25 years or so. It was in the summer. And the Baal Shem Tev summoned this couple, this Rebbe Shloim and his wife Rivka, he wanted to see them. They came to him, they walked into his room, and they were depressed, they were very, very unhappy. And the Baal Shem Tev said to them, I see that you're so disappointed, you're so depressed, you're so unhappy. You're so blessed, you're so wealthy, and you're so generous, you give so much tzedakah, you have such incredible schus. What is eating at you? Why are you so broken? So they said to the Holy Baal Shem Tev, why are we so broken? You know, like Avraham Avinu said, We have no children. Who are we going to leave our wealth to? So the Baal Shem Tev said, you've done so many mitzvahs. And she says, but what's going to happen to us after we die? There will be no trace. It will be, be as if we never lived. So the Baal Shem Tev says to this Rebbe Shloim and his wife Rivke, that 
tomorrow, I think this occurred on a Wednesday, I'm taking a trip. And I'm taking along a select group of my Talmidim. And I want you too to join on this uh, journey. The following day, um, which was perhaps Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, they got a bunch of wagons, a Moshe Shleimer sponsored whatever was needed. There was a separate wagon for the wife. That's how this story is told. And the Hashem had his own personal wagon in the lead. And in between, there were various wagons of the Talmidim and of course the Moshe Shleimer himself. And they journeyed for five days. During this five-day trip, they had stopped someplace for Shabbos. They had stopped in many villages and cities where the Bashemta's name was well known and they were greeted quite warmly until they arrived in Eshtetale on the sixth day of their journey, which was a Monday, to a city near the city of Brody, which is a pretty large city. I guess it was a pretty small village. And the Bashemta said, we're stopping here. He got out of the wagon. They went into one of the homes. The host greeted them very warmly, invited them in and brought them into an antechamber, into a large room where they all stayed together. And Bashemtev went into a second room where he was able to be alone. And after a while, he came out of his room and said, we're going to go and do a tour of the town. They walked out into the street and here the Bashemtev, a million, ten disciples, and the Moshe Shleim and his wife Rivka are all walking together through the streets of this village. And they see a group of boys playing. So the Bashemtev walks up to the first boy and says, What is your name? He says, My name is Baruch Moshe. He goes up to the second boy and says, What is your name? He says, My name is Baruch Moshe. He goes up to the third boy and says, What is your name? He says, My name is Baruch Moshe. He goes up to the fourth boy and says, What is your name? He says, My name is Baruch Moshe. He goes up to the fifth boy and says, What is your name? He says, My name is Moshe Mordechai. He goes up to the sixth boy and says, And what is your name? He says, My name is Baruch Eliyahu. Then there was one girl in the group and she says, she volunteers, my name is Brachaleah. It was quite interesting to find a whole group of children who, who virtually had um, identical names. The Bashemtev didn't say anything, but he smiled and his face radiated. He was, he was looking for something and clearly whatever it was that he was looking for, he was following. And they walked and they met a little girl and they asked her what her name was, and she also said her name was Brachaleya. Then they went up another street, and they found a group of little girls playing. And the Bashemte went up to one of the girls and said, What is your name? She says, My name is Brachaleya. To a second girl, she says, What is your name? My name is Brachaleya. A third girl's name was also Brachaleya. There was a boy in the group whose name was Baruch Moshe, and then there was a girl whose name was Bracha Miriam. To make a long story short, they went from place to place, they went into one of the Chadorim. And uh, the Vashemtev went inside, and the Malamad greeted them. The Vashemtev called the Moshe Shloim and his wife Rivka to join him in the Cheder. And uh, there were 20 children. Six children's names were Baruch Moshe. And on the other 14, there was a Baruch Avram, and a Moshe Yosef, and a Baruch Shmuel, and a Baruch David, and a Baruch Chaim, and a Baruch, and a Baruch Yitzchak, and a Baruch Shalom, and a Baruch Tuvia, and a Moshe Yitzchak, and a Moshe, and a Moshe Zechariah, and a Moshe Yisrael, and a Moshe Shloim. In other words, it was very obvious that somebody by the name of Baruch Moshe had left an incredible mark on the people in this town. And it was very clear that there was a pattern here, that all the people in the town had named their children after this couple, these two people, Baruch Moshe and Brachaleim. The Bashemtev inquired about how many chadorim, how many schools there were for little children. And they told him whatever the number was. And he went to several of them. And wherever they went, they found the same situation. They went to the yeshiva, where there were older boys studying, and they found the same 
thing that so many of the children and so many of the young men and women had names that were anchored somehow in Baruch Moshe and in Baruch Aleya. So finally, the Bashanta went to Dav Mincha and he asked somebody in Shul, how is it that all the children around here seem to have the same names? And the presumption was there must have been some holy tzaddik and some holy tzaddikis, some holy Rebbe and Rebetzin, who people named their children after in the hope of, so to speak, drawing some of that energy, some of that schus, some of that promise to their own children. He said, I'll tell you the truth, the person after whom these people are named was no tzaddik, but he was a wonderful man by the name of Barach Moshe, and his wife's name was Brachaleya. And he tells him a story. There was a Jew by the name of Isaac Shleim. lived in this city a hundred years before. But Isaac Shleim was a big Talmud Chacham. And he was a butcher. And somehow he was a wealthy butcher in those days. He did quite well. And as the story unfolds, he actually went into the meat business. Not just being a butcher, but he actually started to sell livestock, animals. And he became quite well to do. He gave a lot of tzedakah. He also supported a, a whole collection of B'nai Teda who would sit and learn Teda. And he would also give free meat to those who couldn't afford it for years and years and years. And this man, Abba Isaac Schleimer, um, had no children. After being married for about 15 years, he had a son, whom he named Baruch Moshe, and he sent him to Cheder, and the boy uh, was no good at learning. He couldn't learn. So he, he stayed in Cheder till Bar Mitzvah, then he stayed one year after Bar Mitzvah, and it was very obvious that Baruch Moshe was no scholar. So his father, Rabbi Isaac Shleimer, took him out of the yeshiva and put him to work in his business. And he was very good at what he did. Now Rabbi Isaac Shleimer himself was a Talmud Chacham. So slowly, he left the business to his son and he went back to sitting and learning day and night. And, um, and it became Rabbi Baruch Moshe's business. Rabbi Baruch Moshe married a woman whose name was Rabbi Baruch She was the daughter of Yankov Potash, some holy man in town. And the the senior members of this group were involved in holiness. Rabbi was busy running this big business, which he expanded. And him and his wife were in the business of helping people and giving lots of tzedakah and so forth and so on. And, uh, but they also didn't have any children. When his father died, and his mother died, he wanted to learn Mishnayis in the memory of his parents. And he pushed it, couldn't. He was so simple, he was so unschooled, he was so intellectually ordinary that he couldn't study a single mission. And he hired Shlaim Yitzchak the Malamid to help him study Mishnayis, and he would explain it and explain it and explain it, and Ramesha didn't, didn't understand. Now, the um, Malamid of Shlaim Yitzchak used to also give a shir and shul on a yankif, you know, to tell stories from the Gemara, all very simple stuff. And Reb Baruch Moshe would stand in on this learning and he understood a little bit more, he understood a little bit less, but he really was intellectually uh, unfit for anything intellectually challenging and he couldn't learn. One day he was at the Shir of the Malamed, the Yitzhak the Malamed, and he mentions the Maimah Chazal, Kol HaMalamed Ben Chaveri Teira, Malalava Kostav Kiliyod, if you teach your friend's child, Teira, it's as though you gave birth to them. So the next day, when he meets his Malama, Rabbi Yitzchak, he starts to cry. And he says, you know, I have no children. And you said last night in the Shir that if you teach somebody else's children, Teira, it's as if you gave birth to them. 
But not only don't they have any children, I cannot teach because I can't learn. So I'm broken that not only do I not have any biological children, I'm not even in a position to have spiritual children. So the Malamed, the Shlomo Yitzchak told them, don't you understand? The meaning of this Maimei Chazal doesn't mean that you have to teach them personally. It means you can arrange for them to learn. If you will set up a cheder, where you Yitzchak will learn, and you can hire somebody else to teach them, that's your teda, and those children are your children. And so Shlomo Yitzchak explains this to the Baruch Moshe. The Baruch Moshe took this to heart. It made him feel very, very good. He came home to his wife, Baruch Aleya, and they talked it over. And the two of them set up in this shtetala a series of chadorim, of, of schools, little you know, informal schools for Kindalach to learn. And they supported them. They supported the Malamdan, they supported the children. And many, many, many children joined the chadorim that were supported by this wealthy Judah Baruch Meish and his wife, Baruch Aleya. And the Friedrich Rebbe tells many stories about how their wealth continued to grow and so forth and so on. And they had as many as 30 such chadarim, 30 such malamdim, teaching untold numbers of children. And when they were old, and they had accomplished so much, and were responsible for so many Yiddish kindalach, one day the Baruch Aleya says to her husband, the Baruch Meish, and she says, you know, this is all wonderful, we've done so many mitzvahs, but when we die, we're not going to be remembered. We're leaving no progeny, leaving no children. And the Baruch Meishah, whom the Fidi Kebbe describes as being a man of incredible character, never ever in his life had he gotten upset at his wife. Now, for the first time, he gets upset at her. And he says to her, the Gemara says, teaching somebody else's child is like giving birth to them. So what do you mean we have no children? If we truly believe in these words of the Gemara, we have the schus of so many Yiddish Kindalach. And of course, the Baruch Meishah Baruch died. And after they died, the Chadorim continued after them. And many generations of children had by this point benefited from the investments that Baruch Moshe and Baruch Aleyah had invested. And as a result, so many of the children bear their names. The person to whom the Baal Shem Tov was talking, who was already an adult, says, I learned in one of the Chadorim that were sponsored by this Baruch Moshe. And when they died, they divided up their money into four portions. One-fourth was for relatives. One-fourth was to support poor people. One-fourth was to help people with loans. And one-fourth was to continue the supporting of the Malamda. And so many children, over the course of several generations, carried the name of Rabbi Meisha and Rabbi Aleya because, um, because they had given birth to them spiritually, they were the source of their Torah, the Yiddishkeit, and so forth and so on. And this person telling the Bashem to the story finishes is every year on the yard site of the Baruch Meisha and the Baruch Aleya, we get together. And we commemorate the yard site as children would commemorate the yard site of biological children, bi- biological parents, because we see them as obligated to them as any child would be to, um, to his parents. After Maidiv, the Bashem came home and the Baal Shem Tov said to Moshe Shleim and his wife, this is what the Pasuk says, Shame There's a name, a good name, which is even more precious than Banim Banot and sons and daughters, because it's Shame Oilam, it's an eternal name which a person 
can acquire through the giving of tzedakah, and particularly the giving of tzedakah to support b'nei teireh and loimdei teireh and chadrei teireh and so forth and so on. And of course the end of the story was that this couple, the Moshe Shleim and Rifkin, never had any children, but they rejoiced in the opportunity to teach through others, of course, Torah. And when they died at a ripe old age, many, many children that were born to the students who had benefited from their investments um, carried their names and uh, continued their legacy and their memory and so forth. You know, the great, it's a nice story. <laughs> and I actually copied the text of Sikha and I wanted to tell it to you correctly with all the details to a considerable degree at least. It's a nice story. And um, the story, of course, has many connotations. But one of the things that the story reveals is something which is really, it's common sense, but as I always say, common sense is most uncommon. And that is, there are many paths to God. There is not one road that people journey down. In other words, within the Torah and mitzvahs and Yiddishkeit, people have different paths. Some people become B'nai Torah, Lemdei Torah, who spend their entire lives studying Torah. And some people become Toymchei Torah, the supporters of Torah. And you know, it says in the Zayhar, you know, it says in the Pasuk, Eitz Chayim Hi Lemachazikim Ba V'Semchei HaMeushar. Eitz Chayim Hi, that Torah is a tree of life. Lamachazikim Ba to those who hold on to it. V'Semchei HaMeushar, and those who support it are fortunate. So the idea, of course, is that there is blessing, there is merit to those who study Torah, and there is equally blessing and merit to those who support Torah. So the Zayar says in this Pasuk which means to say that the blessing for those who support the Torah is greater than the blessing of those who actually do the studying of the Torah. And who knows? Who knows? Who's the bigger tzaddik? The person who sits in davens and learns or the person who gives tzedakah and has good character <coughs> and notices those people that nobody pays attention to. These are measures that only God has. And one of the things that the Baal Shem Tev taught was that you cannot judge a book by its cover. The big rabbi could be corroded, God forbid, and the simple Jew could be pure and innocent and, and godly, literally. So who knows? And the Tanya, the Altarebbe talks about Avas Yisrael and how you cannot measure Jews, it says, Kulan Matimis, we're all on the same level. Of Echad we all come from the same parents, which means we come from one essence, Hashem. And then it says, malasan, Who really knows? Whose neshama comes from a higher source and the living God? Who really knows whose neshama is loftier? Obviously, there's a presumption that a more pious and righteous and studious Jew is on a higher level than an ordinary person who is involved in business and in commerce. It may not even be that from or that from, from at all. But you never know. You never know. And any ton of your day, only God knows. These are the mysteries of God's creation. And frequently, people who may seem overtly, externally, not that virtuous, not that prominent, not that important from a perspective of Yiddishkeit and spirituality may be much closer to God than people that you would presume are actually quite close. I believe the story, this story I've told you before, 
someone that I know told me this, that when he got married, he had consulted the Rebbe about a, a path, what he should do with his life, and the Rebbe had given him advice to go into some kind of a, a venture which wasn't necessarily that spiritually lofty. This person's father, who was a very special chassid, I suppose he felt that it was a poor choice, that his son could have come up with better ideas. So he went into the Rebbe, and he was talking to the Rebbe about his son, and he mentioned to the Rebbe that his son was offered this position. He had consulted with the Rebbe, and the Rebbe had told him to take it. And he said these words, Perhaps the undertaking that he'd been given was not his but he used the Yiddish expression, not his sparks to elevate, which is a mystical allusion to the idea that every neshama that comes into this world has particular sparks that are destined for it that it needs to uh, access. So the Rebbe answered and said, the Friedrich Rebbe said he doesn't understand the secret of sparks. In other words, which sparks belong to which souls. I certainly don't know the secret of which sparks belong to which souls. If he asked, and this is what I told him to do, that's what he should do. In other words, whatever you do is a path to God. Any channel of avoided that a person journeys down or undertakes or invests in is, is real and is significant and is important and frequently looks can be deceiving and people involved in what may appear to be less than the most directly righteous and virtuous and pious endeavors are in fact closer to God because of the tzedakah they give or the kindness that they display and so forth and so on. We're in the middle of a maimer. We're on round three, part three of this maimer, miyitan chakachli which is describing the idea of the Kruvim, that we are a brother, so to speak, or a brother and a sister to God Almighty. Which means to say that just as the cherubs, the Kruvim, that sat in the Holy of Holies, were a male image and a female image that, sat, that stood facing one another in the Kedesh HaKadoshim, this of course is representative of God and the Jewish people, and on this Puriya, on this union, rested the Shekhinah, so in the times of Golos, we pray and say, just like in the time of the Beis Amikta, the Jewish nation were as a brother to God, because they had this incredible intimacy as represented by the two Kruvim and the Kedish HaKadoshim on the Aron. Beis Amikta is now destroyed, the Aron has now been hidden away, and the, the issue is, pardon me, I wish that even in Golos we had this possibility. So last week, we explored Mi'itencha using the model of a ben That when a person studies Teira, and if you remember last week's class, we talked about studying Teira Shabal Peh, where there's a special emphasis on Yegiyah. It's not the enlightened dimension of Teira. It's the intellectual, strugglesome dimension of Teira. That makes you a Merkava, on which the Shekhinah rests, and you can become a Akach, like a brother to God Almighty. So, the base of Mikdash is gone. But people, through their Yagiyah and Teresh of Alpeth, with their incredible endeavor, exertion, to understand God's holy Torah, and particularly to Paskin Halacha, so the Torah can become like a brother to the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as the Kruvim were in the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Now what about someone who cannot learn? So the Maimer continues and the Pasuk continues. Line 92 please, which is on the fourth page. 
The Pasuk says, I wish that now also we could be as a brother. That's nursing from her mother's breasts. I will lead you. I'm going to bring you into my mother's home. Which goes on to If I find you outside, I will kiss you. From a sweetly... Um, uh, uh, aromatic wine, a wine that's been made to smell very, very well. So the way the Pasuk develops is, means we want to be like a brother to the Eibishter, to God Almighty, as he would in time to the Beis HaMikdash. And Yenig Mishtei Imi, and Ahechal Beis Imi goes on Torah. But now we're dealing with another kind of a person. Em a Jew who's outside translates the Rebbe This is an allusion to business people. That the reality is they're simply not in a position to study Tato all the time. That in this passage it is the idea that it's in the present tense nursing from his mother's breasts. by studying even to such people who are simply in no position to study Torah all day long. They don't have the intelligence and the background and the know-how and the patience and the skill. God Almighty can find us outside. Outside means out in the world. And there too, we can become as the Kruvim were in the Beis HaMikdash, that even in Zmana Golas, and even someone who cannot study Torah can bring the Shekhinah to himself. And the Rebbe goes on to explain, and I'd like to explain it to you, says the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe goes into uh, a, a really a elementary conversation, a fundamental conversation, and forgive me for indulging you, I would like to introduce this conversation using a form other than the form in this Maimir. Why? Because I like it. I want to. <laughs> I don't need to do this. This is something that I'd like to do. Eishas Chaya. Friday night we say Eishas Chayel. Now don't ask why we say Eishas Chayel. You know, people have very simple romantic notions of Eishas Chayel, and they're also very important and meaningful and real. But Eishas Chayel was put in the Siddha by great Mokobolim, a great Tzaddikim. And it was put there for far loftier reasons. And the reasons the Eishas Chayel are in the Siddha on Friday night is because Eishas Chayel is an allusion to the Neshama. And what's happening when we're saying the Eishas Chayel is, that a whole week the Neshama is out in the world doing its thing and if you ever read the Eishas Chayel the substance, the content of the Eishas Chayel describes the Neshama as a businesswoman who's involved in all kinds of endeavors she's involved in production she's involved in trade she's involved in commerce and everything the Eishas Chayel is doing in the, in the you know, Mishlei, Kapitel Lamed Aleph is to great success. She's an incredibly successful woman. And of course, underneath it all, there is the idea that everything that she's doing, she's doing for her husband. And of course, her husband is the Eibishter, God Almighty. And the Eishas Chayel, the woman of valor, who's getting up in the middle of the night to run the mills, and then to sell the silk, and then to trade, and to purchase, to buy, and to sell, and all the rest, is the Neshama. And of course, all of this um, buying and selling and producing is representative of what we would call the idea of elevating sparks, taking from what is the world and using it 
for Avodah Hashem. And then Friday night, she comes home. She's not working. She rests. And she comes home to her husband. And she raises herself above her work. And as she comes into the private, peaceful domain where there's no business and there's no struggles and there's no need to modify and to correct and to change, she's praised. It's going on in the And of course, after Shabbat, she goes back out into Chutz, as Amayma calls it, only to come home again on Friday night and again be praised with Eishas Chayel. And of course the idea is that every Shabbos, all the sparks that we have accrued, collected during the course of the week, are raised up and included in the divine Tainuk, the divine delight, and the Neshama on Shabbos gets to enjoy the delight, the Tainuk of the struggles that it undertook and the endeavors that it, anticipa- it participated in during the course of the week. And of course the same is true of a businessman, the same is true of a person who's not fortunate enough to be a Yeshavel, a person whose whole life is Taita, who's very blessed, very fortunate. Other people have to be involved in the real world, away from Yiddishkeit and away from Ruchnis, what our pastor calls Chutz. But they too can be a Merkava to Hashem based on this principle of going out into the Chutz and bringing it home. And now, let's learn the Maimon and listen to the Rebbe say what I just said using the model of our Maimer. Well, Ian explains the Rebbe on line 95. We find that there is an idea that Hashem is acquiring, is taking possession of His world. As the Almighty takes possession of heaven and earth. And the question is obvious. Since when does God have to take possession of what is actually His? Why does the Abish have to be Koinish Shemayim Va'aretz? Is it not true that Shemayim Va'aretz is already his? We all know that a similar allusion can be found in the Mishnah. God has acquired five things. Why must God acquire anything? Isn't everything his already? And the Rebbe explains this doesn't mean that before his Kenyan it wasn't his, but rather that the Kenyan indicates it represents a raising up from a lower level to a higher level. It says in the Pesach, In six days God Almighty created the Sashma, heaven and earth. In the seventh day He rested. And of course everybody knows the Bar Mitzvah Maimah. It doesn't say in six days. It says with six days. That the six meters of HaKadosh Baruch Hu are invested in the creation. And on Shabbos everything is ascending, resting, Every single Shabbos is the seventh day. As it is, Shabbos, or they have rest, when everything ascends to the level of Havai. And the Rebbe asks the same question that all the G'dayli Yisrael ask, the Rambam asks it, and so forth. How can you call Shabbos the seventh day? We've had thousands of days. And of course the answer is, that it reminds us of the fact that the Hebrews created the world. The question is, How can you call any particular Shabbos? Nowadays, Yehimashvi the seventh. Why would you refer to Shabbos as the seventh day? And of course the answer is that the seventh doesn't mean the seventh as opposed to the eighth. It means the idea of rest. Ah, the answer is the six days are the six divine attributes. Midas, Sphiris. 
which God Almighty created the world. The first day was a day of chesed, and therefore David created light. And then, of course, the second day was a day of gavur, and therefore David made divisions. As it says, it's mentioned in Shariq and Ramun, I think, in Perikidal. And when Shabbos comes, all of this investment in creation is raised up to a level which is above the struggle of the reality of creation itself. To their root and source, higher and higher still. And the Rebbe says, This repeats itself every week. There is a cycle of the descent and the reascent of the world and all of its creations and all of the changes, the positive and elevating changes that have taken place between last Shabbos and the current Shabbos. During the six days of work. The six attributes descend to affect clarity, to disentangle entanglement, and to extract what is positive and raise it up. And when Shabbos comes, they are raised up. As well as the world raised up. This ascent happens on the day, and the midah which is the seventh. In other words, on Shabbos. The world's ascend above the struggle, Shubachinus Amalchus, which is the day of Malchus. I mean, the simple example, of course, given to describe this is if you're involved in a project, you don't really have time to stop and enjoy it until you're done. Or you pause. Shabbos is such a pause. You stop, menucha, rest, and all of your efforts and all of your struggles, so to speak, uh, achieve resolution. They come home. And you're able to see them and to experience them in a much more positive and peaceful light, only to then pursue the work further until the project is completely finished. And of course, in the Nimshul, this would be the life of a person. But it's a cycle. And the Rebbe says, this is going to explain why Hashem will refer to some aspect of His creation as Kinyanim, although everything belongs to Him. Let's keep reading. Line 104. This is the meaning of the word, Vayechulu. Now, of course, the simple translation of Vayechulu means he finished. But Vayechulu also denotes kilayon, expiring, going out, raising itself up. Lashen kol just like the neshama raises itself above the body. Similarly, on Shabbos, the world raises itself above the level of speech, to the level of thought, as it's explained in Chassidus. kala, that Shabbos is called the bride, kala. And of course, in Shirashirim, kala is the idea of Kalei nefesh, the Neshama ascending upwards. So the concept of Kala and Kolsa and Vayechulu doesn't mean to end, it means to raise up. And therefore, when it comes Friday night, we say, on the Friday night, the night of Shabbos, God has acquired heaven and earth. Although the heaven and earth belong to him all the time, Shabbos is a new Kenyan. Because it's the transference of the world that already belonged to God from one level to a higher level. Hine explains the Rebbe, line 105, the idea that on Shabbos all the worlds ascend, which of course includes not just the raising up of the worlds, but all additional sparks that we achieved clarity during the preceding week. Ascend, and they're included in the peace and the enlightenment of Shabbos. 
Says the Reb, as our commercial like this can be explained by way of analogy, like an acquisition. What is an acquisition? Something belongs to you. And I have wealth. I give you money and you give me that item. Similarly, there's a world. And the world has divine sparks. The Abish that has wealth. He gives the Jewish people wealth. That means koiches that they employ in extracting the wealth from the world and giving it, selling it to God, raising it up unto the godly realm. So come on, Shalak Kinyan, for example, any form of acquisition. The buyer pays for the acquisition. And as a consequence, he receives. Hachef, it's the possession, which he acquires and brings into his own realm, into his own world, in the same way. By the descent of the supernal emotions. During the six days of creation. Levad and him to involve yourself in a world of entanglement and filth and inconsistency and confusion, to disentangle and to bring clarity to some aspects of this world and to raise them up into God. When Shabbos comes, those sparks that have already been separated and now raised up. From the world of division and disparateness, the opposite of Achtos, the opposite of godliness. To the private domain, that belongs to God Almighty. When this is the concept of Inyan Hakinyan, of the Abish to making an acquisition, although everything already belongs to him, the concept of the Abish to making an acquisition is that it's raised up to a higher plane. Continues the Rebbe and he says, The same idea is true of every Golos, right? The Gemara says in Psachim, that the reason we're in the Golos is she tastes for Leim Gaidim. We should have additional converts. So, of course, the Mamari Hasidis argue there are not enough converts over the course of Jewish history to justify all this suffering. And Kabbalah answers that this doesn't mean only physical human converts, it means the sparks that we're converting from Klippa, from entanglement into Kedusha and clarity. That goals, Yisrael, B'Mitzrayim, B'Mabav, are exiled in Egypt and in Babylon. Hugamkin is the same idea. All kinds of sparks have fallen into these places. And when the Jewish people go down there, they, they mine, they extract those sparks, and on Shabbos they bring them home. The souls of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir Nevadi, who were very famous Gedi Tzedek from various different nationalities, very different roots and sources that were brought back, and they were, of course, the greatest Jews we ever had. Because these were sparks of holiness that were lost. So, Shabbos is a day of rest. But Shabbos is not a day of nothing. Shabbos is a day of experiencing the pleasure of the work that was done during the preceding week. But in order to have a meaningful rest on Shabbos, you have to work all week. If a whole week you don't work, Shabbos has no meaning. Shabbos is the Kenyan, it's the ascent of the efforts that we did a whole week. And the same is true in our lives. There's a significant portion of our lives that's parochial, that's ordinary. And then we have the Shabbos. We have the Kenyan. And the Shabbos and the Kenyan of our lives brings meaning and purpose to every single minute of our life. The same can be found in the text of the Shema. That a person goes out to work Vasafta, the Ganecha, he gathers together his produce. And of course the point is, let's say, for the Bechinus Echad V'yahafta to gather the materials of the physical world and raise them up into the declaration of the unity of God and our love for the Hainu. In other words, a person, a person engaged in production and trade. 
to support himself and his family. Which is from a strictly spiritual perspective, a decline, a descent. But it's not simply to feed oneself, but the feeding of self is actually feeding the food. It's raising it up. Nas Ahakaliat is a subsequent ascent. Kishamispalo Bakayakhila when one later eats with the power of Davins, I'm sorry, with the power of the food they ate. This is how the Reb explains Shita. How can you kill and eat animals? So there's a number of answers. But one of them is because Ain Vishakat Alomashach, you're raising the animal up from the animal kingdom to the human kingdom. The same is true. We're not simply engaging in the world because we have no choice. Because God does have choices. If God didn't think there was a productive reason for us to be involved in the world, he wouldn't put us in it. We're not just here to survive the world, which is in an interest for ourselves, we're here to raise the world up, which is the interest of the world. But in order to do this, you have to be in the world. And that's em to When a person then davens, it raises up the avoid that they did during the preceding time. That's our prayer is called an ascent, a carbon which raises up. In other words, elevating sparks upwards. And then, of course, the prayers of Shabbos raise up the prayers during the week. I don't want to get into this, and I don't have time, but there's the Achilas Choyl and Achilas Shabbos. There's Tfilas Choyl and there's Tfilas Shabbos. There's the eating during the week and the eating on Shabbos. There's the davening during the week and the davening on Shabbos and then of course also there's the Torah during the week and the Torah on Shabbos and all of these are contributing inspirations or aspects that affect going down, struggling and then ascending and raising up line 114 this is the idea a person wishes they had a different vocation a person wishes they did something else I'll tell you a story I'm going to say it without a name, although I don't know if you would mind. Somebody who's a Benon Shal he's, um he comes from a Hasidic stock, non-Chabad Hasidic stock, and he became a Lubavitcher. And he opened a restaurant, opened a restaurant actually in his 770. And his father was very disappointed. Because in his family tradition, you know, either they didn't work at all, if they did work, it had to be as a rabbi or as a teacher, a restaurant <laughs> and he came to America and he had a yechidus with the Rebbe and he complained to the Rebbe that his son whose last name is so and so and whose grandfather was so and so is standing in a restaurant giving people falafel you know, he felt it was very inappropriate and the Rebbe just couldn't understand he said, I don't understand what could possibly more prefer than to feed people give people what to eat the Rebbe thought it was a wonderful profession it's, I guess it's a matter of perspective, but what it comes down to is, it's not one way. Every single person, whatever vocation they have, can use it as a tool for Avodah Hashem. And in fact, as you'll see soon, there's an advantage to the people who are involved in more ordinary things. Their Emtza Echa Bachutz raises up the world and incorporates it into the realm of godliness through the process called Kinyin, and in a way he's at an advantage over the Benteiro who sits and studies day and night and is isolated from the world. Line 114. You can find God on the street as well. The business people also can find Hashem outside. In other words, and I want to mention, by the way, Tanya chapter 34, where he talks about you give 20% or 10% to tzedakah. 
the Arba Yadas Yilachemah, the remaining 80% you keep, but the money that you keep is made holy and a carbon by the percentage that you gave. Just like when a person gives one animal, it elevates all the animals of that species, that kind, that type. Similarly, you give a certain percentage to tzedakah. It's not that you've given that portion to tzedakah. The money that you keep for your own personal use and your own leisure is also holy and proper because you've given a percentage of it to the Eibishter. Kivan sin chayadei as came through their business efforts. The sparks of godliness are raised up into the unity of God. And the Rebbe says, To be sure, every Jew in one way or another is involved in taking material things and raising them up to Hashem. The first section of Shema needs Kavana. You must know what you're saying. A person davens and doesn't have Kavana. They don't daven again because chances are second time around will be better than the first. Except for several parts. The first Pasuk of Shema and the first Yibrachas Hashemayin essay that if you didn't have Kavana, you have to daven again. What you should do, you have to speak to a Rav. But that's the din. Certainly the first Pasuk of the Shema certainly needs Kavana. So we all pay attention to the idea of Echad. Giving ourselves away to the Eibishter. But the giving ourselves away to the Eibishter, the Mesiras, Nefesh of Echad, is giving away what we've accrued, what we've collected, so to speak, Pachutz, out there in the world, and raising it up to the Eibishter. You give away your will, your life, your earnings, to the Achtas of the Eibishter. Every Jew has this idea within it. Although a Jew is not standing in the actual state of readiness for Mesiris Nefesh. We have the potential for the idea of Mesiris Nefesh. It says in Tanya that there's no Jew who's beyond sacrificing his life for God. And even if we're not actually sacrificing our lives for God, in theory, we're in a state of this sacrifice. I want to refer you to Tanya chapter 41, Pedic Memalaf. Without the Rebbe makes an interesting observation about the Lakai Neshama. Of course, every morning, shortly after we wake up, we thank God for giving us back our soul. And of course, particularly for giving us back the same soul we gave Him the night before, and not a different one. Which is why we say, the souls can sometimes get crossed, apparently. And what do you say to the Yebishter? Lakai, God Almighty. The soul you give me is pure. Atavrasa, you created it, which is Briya. Atayetzarta, you formed it, which is Yetzira. Atanafachta, you blew it into me, which is Asiya. And then Vaatam, Beshamra, Bekirbi, you preserve it within me, is, is, is an Atzmiyazdika level, which is higher than everything that keeps the Neshama where it is. And then we say, Vaataosid, little Yemeni, you will one day take it away. So the Rebbe says in Tanya, we all have a soul, we thank God for it. We also know that one day the Pikadin is not going to be returned. We don't live forever. So he uses the words, I'm giving you my soul right now. In other words, al Rebbe says that the reason we say each morning is not to thank God for the return of our soul, but exactly the opposite. To say to God, since the soul is yours and you're given to us on loan and you're one day going to take it back, take it now. But not take it now, I don't want to live. Take it now means that my life should be lived in your service. And this is called, without getting into the intricacies, Mesiras Nefesh B'Koyach, 
a sacrifice of self on a theoretical and potential level. And al Rebbe says, here this exists in every person. And this Mesiris Nefesh B'Koyach is the giving of our material lives to Hashem, which makes even people who are not B'nai Teira, Leim Dei Teira, and involved directly in Teira and Yiddishkeit, also Merkava for Hashem. And to Echabachotz, he finds us outside and we give of what we have to him, and as such, we raise up all that we have to him. Imke, and as a result, this business, who is no different than acquiring heaven and earth, not just through Teda, but through business, through the world. Skip one line. And then he says even more. Not only is it true, that even a Jew who's not involved all the time directly in Teda and Mitzvahs can become a Merkava, a Kruv for the Eibshter. But a business person can also become. But in fact, the people out in the world have an advantage. Because when it comes to them, it says, Eshokha, I will kiss you. I find you outside, Eshokha, I'll give you a kiss. And he interprets the kiss as follows. Bechinas, Nishikin, it's a kiss. But what kind of a kiss? The kiss on the level of who is dapkas rucha berucha, the fusion of a spirit with a spirit, so the unique style of prayer of a businessman. And when a businessman prays, it's not about delighting in God, but rather it's the struggle to keep a balance between their spiritual identity and their real lives. And because they're dealing with greater darkness, they have a greater aspect of life, of light, and as a result, the business person arouses and brings down from a place which is much, much higher. Now, I don't want to get into this because this is all problematic. In Tanya chapter 46, Yiddishkeit has three categories. A hug, a kiss, and a fusing of spirits. A hug is mitzvahs. A kiss is teireh. The joining of spirits is, uh, is anastaris, is the inner dimension of being a Jew, the love, the feeling for Hashem, and so forth. Here, he joins the kiss with this tapkis rucha berucha. And the reason is very simple, because the Ben Teira, who's learning Teira, is also being kissed by God. Because in Tanya 46, Teira means a kiss. So why are we making the the business person special, because it's written that Hashem kisses him, the Ben Teira is kissed as well. And the answer is because there's two levels of a kiss. There's a reasonable kiss, and there's a kiss which is beyond reason. The Ben Teira is kissed through his knowledge, ideas. It gives you a delight. That's what a kiss is. But it's a reasonable pursuit, and therefore the kiss is contained and limited by the reason, by the ideas that are the basis for this delight. So it's a limited delight. Here, the kiss is not a response to a reasonable endeavor, but to a super reasonable endeavor, super reasonable endeavor, the person is involved in Gashmias, and yet he gives it to Hashem, this kiss comes from beyond reason, and the way it's described, is it's an expression that's beyond words, a reasonable thing can be articulated, a super reasonable thing cannot, and he explains, that the response that Hashem gives, to the business person whose life is designed, to give to the Eibishter, is it's a kiss but what kind of a kiss like a kiss you love the person so much there are no words to articulate it all you can do is give them a kiss 
He mislabeshes behevel and hashikin is communicated through the air of a kiss. In other words, this kiss is a method by which God gives us something that words cannot carry, because the emtsecha bachutznik is not simply giving the Abish that his mind he's giving something to Abish that which is even higher. So, not only is it wrong to say that only the Benteira and the Talmud Chacham can be a Merkava and a Kruf of the Abish to soak in the Balaisik, and in a way he's even higher. Next paragraph. However, line 130. Although it's true that the businessman's life is primarily work and involvement in the world, and their involvement in the Eivishter is by the gifts that they give Hashem. But they too study Torah a little bit. And Ohek, I will lead you, Aviachal Beisimi, I'll bring you to my mother's house. So the Rebbe, who begins Torah, it's the aspect of Torah within the world of the businessman. In other words, just as most people, even if they're involved in Torah, must make a living. Like Rabbi Shmuel, Tehidim Derecheretz. And even people who make a living have to study Torah. But the Torah of the businessman is measured in time and in depth. Even a business person has to dedicate time to Torah. Although the truth of the matter is, what they do for the most part, through their actions, bending themselves, the self-imposed coercion in giving tzedakah, Nevertheless, there's an order. And because there's an order, it starts from the theory to the practice. First you think, then you speak. And then you do. And thought and speech is Torah. Thought and speech is the idea of fixing time for learning Torah. From people who are involved in the world. Skip the parenthesis. Therefore, a person whose entire life is teira, it says yenik shteima. Yenik means he's in a perpetual state of nursing from his mother's breasts. Shulashin tmidi, which denotes constancy, because kivagi said by yemim v'laylaksev. Since they're studying teira all the time, they're nourishing from Hashem all the time. Or b'bali esok and business people, shulrak vias item. They set aside a measured and limited amount of time for their teira. Nema, it doesn't say yenik. It says. Anahekai will lead you. Aviacha will bring you. Abayi saw me to my mother's home, indicating that you nurse and nourish. Turn to line 138. Um, only in a measured and a limited way. So the Bentator is learning Tator all the time. The Balaisek is involved in Chutz, giving that to the Avish there, which is called a Kenyan. But he too learns a little bit, which is called Anahekha Aviacha Abayi but then the pasuk in his ashekha, I will kiss you, as we discussed before, miyayin from a wine which has been properly spiced. So you have three things here: you have the Torah, you have the the emtsecha b'chut, their business. Then you have their being nursed by their mother, which is the study of Torah. Then you have the wine, and then you have the rekicha. Then you have the pleasant smell, which is attached to the wine. So. The way you would have to look at this is that the Torah they learn would be food. The wine that they drink brings joy to the food. And the fact that the wine has been spiced and seasoned to have a pleasant aroma would be even higher than the joy of wine. So food would be primius, the joy would be a little bit higher than that, and the psalm is even higher than that still. And the Rebbe goes on to explain Hini. Let's talk about wine first. 
Wine brings joy. So the food that you eat is the taira. The wine that accompanies the meal brings joy to it. Mystically speaking, wine goes on the secrets of the taira. Which is the level of hidden the oral taira. Now over here, taira must mean differently than the way I explained it to you last week. Last week I talked about Tere Shvapeh's Choyshech. Here, Tere Shvapeh means higher than Tere Shvapeh. The Helm of Elokus, which is revealed in Tere Shvapeh, Soid, which brings great joy. And the fact of the matter is, and because it's revealing Soid, the secret, it brings joy to Elokim, to godliness. Hainu explains that Abaki Elokim, Umidisat Simtsum. Elokim denotes Simtsum, Lies Helm has to the concealment of light. After one studies Torah, they also incorporate into their study joy. They reveal what is hidden. That nothing should be concealed and hidden because joy reveals. In addition to Abishta kissing us for the our lives in the real world and the Torah that we set aside time to study. There is also the kiss from wine, which brings joy. But then there's the third dimension. The third dimension is the psomim, is the pleasant odor attached to the wine. has a good smell. Now, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, a reyach, smell, the Gemara says that smells is connected to the nose, and about the Gemara, the nose, it's written, um, the nose is a source of delight for the soul and not for the body. How do you explain this physically with all the the, uh, the 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 aroma manipulation of our society? But that's what the Gemara says. When they gave him the snuff box, said there's one aver which the body does not have a no. The nose, and he broke off the top of the snuff box. Of course, he removed the needle, as you know, and he used it as a mirror fist film. But according to Kabbalah, Reich is a very high source. The idea of a good smell comes from higher than, say, the Rishtasos. Higher even than the joy of the wine. And that's what he's saying here. A good smell comes from a very high source, which is indirect. It's higher than the food, which is the food is for the body, And it's even higher than the wine, which is the joy of the Tera. Which is also for the body. While Avala Reich, the good smell, Omer, Azal, Chazal, Telos, only the soul benefits from Reich and not the body. It's a much higher delight which the body cannot relate to. In other words, even a person who is so sensitized that he physically enjoys his learning Torah, the delight associated with Reich will appeal only to his Neshama, not to his Guf. And consequently, we see from all of this that even a business person can also become and in a way even more so than the Aviachel base imi than the Benteh. This reveals very acutely, very clearly, why it's so important for the busiest businessman in the world to fix time to learn Teda. Because Shubachinus is Kafya. Because in the time they dedicate for learning Teda, they're bending themselves, yes, and maybe more than regular students of Teda. And consequently, the effect of their learning is it's a joy and a delight. This great smell is something which is very sharp that grabs your um, olfactory attention, as it were. And 
it inspires in the person an elevation which is not available if they would be studying Taita without a scafi. I'm skipping the parenthesis. Shayayin said this wine. It's connected to Pneumius because it's connected to joy. Also has a good smell, which is Bechinus Makif. So, nobody should feel like that God has no use for them. That's, I guess, the point. The person who feels farthest away from HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, in fact, very important to the Yebishter. Because you never know who is giving Hashem greater Nachas Ruach, who is affecting greater Bidurim, who's more directly contributing to the coming of Mashiach Tzitkenu. The important thing is to be Jewish. You earn what you earn, you give what you give, what you must give, what you have to give, what you choose to give, and of course you also have But then he finishes. Some people can't learn at all. Line 147. What about somebody who cannot learn at all? But him it is written, he's the orchard of Rimoinim, of pomegranates. And he explains the allusion. He brings another Pasek. It talks about the pomegranate, and it says of the pomegranate, Rakoscha. The Jews who are in the category of Rakoscha are compared to the pomegranate. And the Gemara explains Jews who are empty from Torah on Malayim mitzvahs kerim and are filled with, with mitzvahs. Like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. Kirekonim, the meaning of the word Ekonim in this version is Ein Empty Jews doesn't mean sinners. They have no Torah. They're full of mitzvahs and good character. And that's the Taich Kepelech Harim in the emptiest Jew is full of mitzvahs. So a Jew who cannot study Tate at all, even Tate doesn't. And nevertheless, he too is making himself a, a kruv for the Shekhinah to rest upon him and to be raised up in the tining of the Abish even without any Tate. But the Amitzvahs made him gamkin gili because Mitzvahs by themselves can also arouse this delight. Or he find when he get the Mitzvahs that is called the Reich, the good smell of clothing. And clothing goes on Mitzvahs. In the lowest level to the garments has the highest source. The good smell, which is a makif, can bring the neshama back down into the guf. And that's it. This is the maimer. So the maimer, as we taught it, is divided into three. The way this was accomplished in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, how it's accomplished now by the Benteira, and how it's accomplished now by the Balesik. And let's finish with the story. And I'm imagining that many of you have heard this story before, but you don't only tell stories because they haven't been told. You tell stories because stories must be told. There was a Yid who was an orphan, a kid. His parents died. And his uncle, who was a blacksmith by profession, adopted him. And he sent him to Cheder. And the kid simply could not study. I mean, from the earliest of ages, he just simply... His friends learned the Aleph base, he learned Aleph. His friend learned Nekudas, he learned Beis. His friend learned to read, he learned Gimel. He learned very, very slowly. By the time it was by mitzvah, he had fallen out of the class unbelievably. So after his bar mitzvah, his uncle took him out of the cheder and put him to work with him in the blacksmith. Now as bad as he was at Torah, that's how good he was at the business of smithery. He was an incredibly gifted craftsman and in a short time he gained a reputation as an expert, and people would come to his uncle's shop specifically to have them do his work. 
their work for them, the, whatever it is, the, the horseshoes, the spokes, the axles, and so forth. When he got married, he moved, uh, let's say, 50 kilometers from his uncle, opened up his own business, and he became quite successful. He lived in this little shtetl, eh? where there were a few passers-by. And as a result, the people of this shtetl developed an incredible sensitivity to Hachnas HaSorcha. Anytime a guest would come, they'd be fighting over him. So the community arranged a series of lotteries. Anytime a guest would come, they would throw a lottery. And once your name was drawn and you got a guest, you couldn't be in the lottery until everybody else got a chance. And then you would get a chance again. And so forth. So, one day, someone comes to town and nobody wants him. He's full of boils, open sores, that pus is running out of, and he stinks. He's very, very, very ill. And nobody wants to go near him. And this blacksmith sees an opportunity. He says to the people of the town, I'll take him, but I don't lose my, ch- my chance to have another guest. And the community was happy to let him have this tzarua. He brings him home, and he looks after him. He washes him several times a day, and he, he puts ointments on his bruises, and they start to heal. And the open wounds start closing, the pus stops oozing, his body begins to clear and he stops to stink. And after a few weeks, he's a mensch. And he says to this Jew, how did you become so abused? Where did all this disease and sickness come from? So he tells him, I'll tell you the truth. He says, I'm a Talmud Chacham, I'm a Ben Teire, in those days. And we know from the holy books that took for the Nishmasa, Tchulcha, the Gufa, took for the Nishmasa. Then the neshama, if the body is punished and made to be weak, the neshama becomes stronger. So I fasted and I've sat on the nests of meat-eating ants and in other ways I've used my body so that my neshama could emerge better, I could understand the Torah on a higher level and so forth. This blacksmith took these words seriously to heart and after some consultation with his wife, he undertook a new life. He worked at his shop till noon and in the afternoons, he went out into the forest, he would sit and say, till him and cry and beg God Almighty to open up his mind because he wanted to understand Torah. Well, one fine day, he's interrupted by a man with a red beard and a, a tarbe and a shtekin, a, a little satchel over his shoulder and a rope around his waist and a stick. And he sees a Jew sitting on a nest of meat-eating ants, crying and reciting psalms. He says, Miato, Maato, Isa, who are you? What are you doing? So he tells him. And the man with the red beard says to him, Hezachayin Yidaleh. You don't have to be a Talmud Chacham. Nowhere is it written that everybody has to be a scholar. You can be just as worthy by supporting Talmud Chacham. And if you give tzedakah to support B'nai Teira, you are equal with them in their Teira. And this Yid said to the man with the red beard, Afal Pikein, I, I, that's not enough. I want to be able to learn Teira myself. So the man with the red beard says to him, if that is the case, I want to tell you something. What you're doing is not a good idea. I've got a better Eitzah. My Eitzah is that if you'll come with me in two years, I can teach you the whole Teira. I'll give you what you need to be able to and you'll be able to learn uh, all of the Teira. But in order to affect this, you're going to have to give me all of your wealth, everything you own, your house, your field, your business, your, your liquid, your cash, and your jewelry, and so forth. And this Jew jumps up and says, where do I sign? <laughs> I'm in. And the man with the red beard says, just relax. 
don't make such decisions in haste. Go home. Discuss it with your wife. Discuss it with your uncle. I'll meet you here in a week from today at this time and this place. So he goes home and he tells his wife. And she's thrilled. I mean, the fact that they're going to be broke is not important. That her husband should be a Talmud Chacham at it above all else. Then he goes to speak to his uncle and reality sets in in a hurry. His uncle was not interested in the idea at all. He says, what kind of nonsense? The rabbi himself said that by supporting Teirah, equal to the students of Teirah. And he says, but I want to be able to learn myself. Anyway, the week passes and the Jew goes out into the forest and sure enough, at the appropriate, uh, uh, the designated time, the man with the red beard and the satchel on the stick shows up and says, what did you decide? And he tells him, we decided to take your offer on a condition. That before we give you all of our wealth, you should come to our home as a guest. Because once we've given all our wealth away, we can't host any guests. Hachnasas Orchem is very important to us. So if you'll come to our home and be our guest one last time, then we'll give you all of our wealth and you'll teach me uh, Torah. So the man agreed. They came to this home. They walk into the house of this blacksmith and the children are dressed in Shabbos clothes. There's a Shabbos tablecloth on the table and there's candles. And the man with the red beard starts talking to the children and he asks them, why is everybody so beautifully dressed? He says, whenever we have a guest, it's Shabbos. They sat around, they had a wonderful meal, they enjoyed themselves. After the meal, the man with the red beard asked for a piece of paper and a pen. And he wrote down everything that this blacksmith owned, his house and his farm and his smithery and his fields. And they signed a contract that all belongs to this person. Then he asked for a sack and he filled it with all the wealth, the gold, the silver, the liquid, the money that this person possessed and so forth. Then he asked for a second sack. And in the second sack, he put all kinds of seeds. And he turned to the wife and said, this house is mine. This field is mine. This, this uh, entire estate is mine. You can live here, rent free. Plant the seeds, harvest crops, and you and your children will be able to eat. I am taking your husband with me. I'm coming back in two years. And they disappeared. For two years, this man was with the man with the red beard. And when he came home, he was a tzaddik nister, who in fact knew Kala Teira Kula. He opened, reopened his shop as a blacksmith. And um, now he wasn't just an ordinary blacksmith, he was in fact an elevated Jew, serving Jews on a high level. And the previous Rebbe says that it was determined later that the man with the red beard was the Halik of Balshemtiv before his Galas, the holy Balshemtiv before he revealed himself. And you figure out the connection between the story and the Maimed. And uh, I'm not sure myself what the connection is, because there's probably two or three different ways to, to read the story into the Maimed.